the boards in front of the 200. Dr. Grayson, Sedestin are challenging and better loosen up on the extreme outside. Sedestin and Benedict have come away. They're fighting it out. Better loosen up on the extreme outside is roaring clear and better loosen up wins the Sajano. Sedestin second. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. Many Australian trainers have tried their horses on Pride's Racing Cube and have given the product a tick of approval. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube set recipe formulation means the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25 kilo bag, in bulk bags, or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at an economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers of thoroughbreds, standard breads, and performance horses are giving it the thumbs up all around the nation. It was just another day at the office for Michael Travers as he trotted dancing with Kitty to the barrier at Leeton on April the 22nd this year. He'd been riding and training under a dual licence for close to two years, but this was an outside ride for the Paul McVicker stable. Dancing with Kitty did what mares can do on occasions and politely put her head down and bucked, dislodging Michael who sustained a dislocated thumb, by no means the worst injury he's ever suffered, but one which gave him food for very serious thought. With more than a dozen horses in work at Wagga for stable clients, he was acutely aware that even the slightest injury was going to disrupt his training operation. He'd enjoyed a very rewarding 25 years in the saddle and was just 14 wins short of the magical 1,000 mark. It was also a primary consideration that he was approaching his 50th birthday. With a training future uppermost in mind, Michael saw little sense in renewing his jockey's licence for the new season. In typical Travers fashion, he made no official announcement of his impending retirement and he just slipped quietly into his new role a full-time professional horse trainer. For me, it's quite a treat to interview a man whose versatility knows no bounds. He's ridden almost a 1,000 winners. He's already well on the board as a trainer. He's a former multiple-subject school teacher, and unlike any horseman I've ever interviewed, he plays very competent piano, and it's unlikely that Mozart himself could read music any better than Michael Travis. Michael, a dislocated thumb is the last thing a concert pianist needs. Absolutely. I think we might be going a little bit far with a concert pianist, but <laughs> uh, I can play a little bit. Uh, I haven't, haven't tickled the ivories in many, many years, but mm. I'm sure it'll come back to me if I do. Well, it, it's like using a knife and fork. You know, once you learn it, you never really forget it. 
Hope so. Hope so. If the time if the time arises. Michael, let's talk firstly about your dual licence. Your early inquiries fell on deaf ears. It seems that Racing New South Wales at that time were very reluctant to give the green light. They certainly were. Uh, had to wait a fair few years or a couple of years behind Queensland and then again Victoria after that. And to be honest, when it finally became available, I was very reluctant. I was in Cowra oh, sorry, at the time and mm. I was working closely with Ken Parsons and Danny Parsons and I just saw how much work it really was uh, for them and I, I shied away for it for a little while. But mm. once I moved back here to Wagga and had a little bit more free time and I thought about it more and it's something I always wanted to do and I was getting on in years and I thought there's a five-year window and I was getting towards that in the window where I'd be happy to be moving on and mm. so I took it up. Michelle Payne inadvertently helped your cause, didn't she? She already held a dual licence in Victoria and she was very frustrated by the fact that whenever she brought horses to Sydney, she couldn't ride them. Yeah, well, that's a, it's a, it was a weird one because now one of the main rules is that if you have a running in the race, you have to ride them or, or not be allowed to ride any other horse in the race. So I can understand the frustration. You, if she's there putting in all the hours and she can do it back at home, it would be very, very frustrating. Mm. Well, it was 2018 before Racing New South Wales finally relented and the dual licence system came into being. But with the proviso initially the jockeys could train no more than five horses at any one time. Now, you quickly worked out that five was simply not enough to generate a livelihood, and you took your case to racing New South Wales. What happened? Yeah, absolutely. Your five was probably a good starting point for the first couple of weeks. And, you know, you've got to cut your teeth somehow. But when you first apply for a licence, like any uh, trainer look, applying for a licence, you have to put in a business statement and, you know, a record of profitability and where you're going to go with things. And even the the blueprint that I was given to, to look at originally showed that you don't really do anything until you, you've got 10 horses in work. So I presented that same case back to New South Wales, Racing South Wales and said, look, you know, I really can't do this uh, with any type of profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely running at a loss, which I expected. You know, if you're running, I was running two businesses at once and one was paying for the other, robbing Peter to pay Paul, yeah. as they say. But they eventually said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, you can have eight. So we, we toddled along with eight for a little while. Uh, and then it got to a point where I was getting offered horses. I was already full up with eight horses and I was getting offered to take on more and I just was knocking these horses back all the time. Uh, it wasn't a great deal, but it was, you know, every couple of weeks you'd get an inquiry and as I have to say, I'm sorry, I've, I've got my regular clients and I don't want to disappoint them and boot another horse out. Mm. So I, I approached them again and they allowed me up to 10 and that's where it stayed and basically got told, don't ask again. So we went along with 10 for a little while and then after the injury, we just decided that was enough. Mm. So that's it. Uh, you, you try to keep the numbers around that mark now. I'm at 12 at the moment. Uh, I was at 14 last week. We just had to turn a couple out. But I am, you know, I've got boxes for 24 there and facilities to, to make sure that runs smoothly. Just not rushing into it at the moment. When the right horses come along, um, I generally 
work with tried horses and we buy a lot through English Digital. Or when I say we, the mm-hmm. pre- predominant owners that I train for buy, purchase their horses that way and when they find the right horse, then they send them over to me. At the moment, we just haven't had the right horses come through those sales that they were happy with. Mm-hmm. So uh, we haven't increased the numbers uh, as quickly as yet. Michael, you'd have to say the dual licence concept hasn't exactly been inundated with applicants for whatever reason. Uh, Jockey trainers are not prolific in New South Wales. We've got Peter Graham and Robert Agnew on the mid-north coast. You tell me Danny Beasley has recently been granted a dual licence. Yeah, which is fantastic and he's here in Wagga with me and he's got two there in work at the moment and I'm sure he's finding out what it's uh, all about and he's been working closely with horses and trainers for many, many years as well so I'd probably no surprise to him. He's probably worked with much bigger stables but yeah, down this end of the world that's only myself and Danny at the moment. Yeah, do you know of any others? No, not down this end of the world. I, I pretty much play in my own sandbox down the SDRA. I, mm. I don't watch a lot of the racing up north. Uh, there's not a lot of time at the moment, to be honest. No. So, um, but no, down this area, um, there's only the two of us at the moment. Attaining a dual licence was one thing. Getting started as a trainer was another. You had troubles finding stabling at Wagga to begin with. Yeah, Wagga is very, very difficult to get stables in. Uh, I know a lot of trainers here at the moment are still uh, struggling. Um, I have often speak to some other trainers that like to move to Wagga, but there's just no stables available. I was very lucky to come across a set of stables that weren't directly on course, but they're not far from it. Um, Dave Hayward used to train out of, and he recently retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Mick Mullins owns them, and uh, he's very good and able to rent them out to me. Yeah, great. It goes without saying that one of your all-time greatest racing thrills was to win your first race as a trainer stroke jockey. And that happened on April the 11th, 2021 at Gundagai when you won with a So You Think mare called Esther Verdi, owned by your wife Jodie. Was that right up there with the best? It certainly was. Uh, Jodie didn't actually own her at that stage. Uh, mm. She was still owned by Miss Robin Tatham. Um, the people that Miss um, Robin Tatham and Peter Knight, they're the people that... Uh, predominantly backed me since I started riding. Um, I actually was able to get Esther Verdi because I chased them up for another horse, uh, which I now have as well, Matherin. Mm. And they, they'd already placed Matherin with another trainer straight after the sale. And they said, oh, we can't give you Matherin, but we've bought another one mm. uh, by the name of Esther Verdi. Would you, would you like to try her? And I I'm not going to knock one back. And Mm. I said, thank you very much. And uh, she was the one that made the history. Ah, wonderful. You still had to discharge your duties on that day, as excited as you were, because you had a ride later in the day on a horse called Moore Euros for the Braidwood trainer, Luke Clark. You made it a double. What a day. It was a fantastic day and she was a fantastic man, more heroes. Um, and Luke has always been a good supporter of mine and a uh, very good horseman. And, you know, it was a, it was great to, to, to win on Esther Verdi and, and just as much as more heroes. I had a good association with that man. You've already mentioned the name Robin Tatham, who, along with her partner Peter Knight, have been your staunchest supporters. They're people who are passionate about their racing. They're absolutely dedicated to their horses 
and they've been with you from the outset. Absolutely, you know, it's it, they've been involved in racing for a very, very long time and support country racing immensely. Uh, I was just lucky enough that I'd ridden for them previously. I remember riding down at Berrigan for them and meeting them uh, one afternoon. And he, they had horses with Paul McVicker at the time. And when I was the underbidder on Matherin, I saw the name Peter Knight. I investigated it further and it happened to be the same Peter Knight that I had ridden for previously. So I was able to get in contact with them and yeah, the rest is history. Mm. Well, you've done a very good job with Matherin, whose record now stands at five wins, 17 placings. That'll give you an idea of her genuine attitude. She's won about $173,000. You'd like a few more like her? I'd love a few more like Matherin. She just tries so hard every race day. She's only 430 kilos, but that, that's all heart. And mm-hmm. we found it very difficult to get her to win early days. We had a lot of problems in that, you know, she just didn't begin in the races or we drew a lot of bad gates. And to be honest, JVO's just got a great association with her now. Uh, he's won three races on it from four rides. Mm. We don't talk about the fourth one, but um, <laughs> it just didn't go to plan that day. But, you know, he, she's so genuine. Um, she's uh, She has run of the house and uh, she knows it too. Mm. JVO, of course, is Jean Van Overmeer, uh, one of Michael's go-to jockeys at the moment, and we'll pay tribute to JVO a little later in our chat. Now, being a trainer stroke jockey comes with a very big workload, which you quickly found out. Uh, You'd finish your stable chores early morning and then off you'd go to a race meeting where you might have three or four runners of your own. You might have two or three rides for outside stables. Now, Michael, I'm intrigued by this. If you're riding in the first and last races, you're not allowed to leave the jockey's room until your final commitment has been honoured. Who would look after your stable runners on days of that nature? I've always had um, someone working for me um, at the time. My most committed person would definitely be Graham Byatt. Mm -hmm. He's been there through thick and thin. He's there to help you at the drop of a hat. He's absolutely unbelievable. He rides a little bit of work for me as well. He, you know, he's a professional trainer in his own right, but he seems to be able to find time to help me whenever it's needed. Mm. And, and, you know, for for anything, you know, even recently I was running a bit late coming home from the races the other day and he, he rang me yeah. rather than me ringing him and said, do you want me to go and throw the feeds in for you? And, you know, it's, he's just there to do it all the time. He's, yeah. he's fantastic. So he, he still helps me pretty much saddle up every single race day. Mm. Either that or I've um, been lucky enough to have good employees and some good girls to to work for me and uh, take care of the horses while I'm not able to be there. Mm. There was a day at Narandra not long after you started with the dual licence. You had six rides, I recall. You won three and you ran a couple of seconds. You trained the first winner, Scorch the Turf, and the other two were trained by Martin Stein, and the late Rick Freyer. That was a hell of a day. It was an exciting day, yeah. Um, I think Rick Freyer's horse was a bit of a long shot and Marty's led all the way. Uh, Scorch, uh, the turf, or we just called him Scorch, he, he mm. won that race, and which was a little bit of a surprise. It beat a nice horse, uh, one of 
Um, Darkie Blundell, was just, I think it's won its last two now at the moment. It's probably won about five or six races there, and we, we knocked off our maiden there, and, and yeah, it was a great day. Mm, I remember another day, it was a Sunday meeting, Michael, at Maruya, which is four and a half hours' drive from Wagga. You went to the stables early in the morning, you headed off to the coast where you had seven rides. You rode a couple of winners too. Boomerang was one of them for Linda Bundy and Big Steve, I think, won the last race. Now, that's the kind of pressure that must have influenced your decision to forsake race riding. Yeah, it, it, they are very, very long days. You're starting there at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning and getting home at about 11 o'clock at night. No need to get up again and start it all over again the next morning. But as I said, I, I've been blessed in having people around me to pick up the slack when I'm not able to be there. Mm. It's a lot of organisation back then, a bit easier now when I, when I don't have those extra commitments. But as I said, you know, I just couldn't have done it back then without the help of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. We mentioned uh, the unfortunate accident with Dancing with Kitty uh, back at Leeton on the 22nd of April when you dislocated a thumb. At what point did you decide to quit the saddle? Was it a week after that, two weeks? Ten minutes. Really? Um, you knew that no, was no, yeah. I, no. I, I'd been tossing up with the idea for a very, very long time and even in that three months that I was off uh, work, with Workers' Comp, I decided I was coming back then I changed my mind and I wasn't and then I decided I was and then I wasn't and then eventually I just wrote a quick email to Racing South Wales mm. saying that I won't be renewing my licence and that just sealed the, the decision for me. I, I didn't want to go back on it then and I haven't so far. Yeah, Michael, you have been a good servant to many, many trainers in the Southern Districts for 25 years. I'm sure there would have been a few disappointed old mates there. A couple, probably a couple of a little bit happy to be able to be able to use utilise other riders as well. And you know, sometimes you don't always click with uh, every single horse. And you know, there are, I've had some great people just stick by me all the whole way through. So, yeah, um, very very uh, happy and um, yeah, it's been a great ride. Your life story makes for very good listening. You grew up in Sydney. You started going to the races at an early age with your grandfather, who was a regular. You enjoyed a little punt in those early days, you tell me. I certainly did. That's uh, what got me into racing, to be honest. And I stayed a punter for many, many years after that as well. Mm. And eventually my mum and dad knew that I had this passion for for racing and the, the want to be a jockey, so they started sending me to the stables more than anything to try and get it out of my system and mm. find out how hard it really was. But it, unfortunately, I started really liking the horses then. Mm. Um, they made a deal with me that if I finished university, um, they would help support me through the tough times, which is mm. always there for an apprentice so financially as well. Mm. And um, I was good to them and by doing that, and they were very good to me. Yeah. You told me you became absolutely intoxicated with the whole atmosphere of the racetrack, the crowds, the bookies, the punters, and, of course, those beautiful thoroughbreds. You were hooked instantly, weren't you, from day one? Absolutely, and, you know, I still have um, folders and albums of paper clippings from, from the newspapers about Superimpose and Show County and yeah. 
And, you know, I, I had some great friends that we used to go every single Saturday. We'd, we'd either drive out or catch a, a bus train out to the races and mm. and uh, see how we went and got photos and taking photos of my favourite horses when I was out there. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely hooked. Yeah. You saw most of the top horses of the era, but you've just mentioned the two that have remained indelibly etched in your memory. The great superimpose, winner of 20 races, eight Group 1s, 5.6 million. You were absolutely loved him. Yeah, absolutely. And that 5.6 would be uh, a lot more these days for the mm. races that he's won. He was he was just a fantastic horse and I idolised him. My best mate loved better listen up so we had our little rivalry there but mm. he was great to watch and i never forget being there for his uh, second Epson when he went up the inside and uh, mm. it was it was fantastic you were very fond of that chunky little sprinter show county not the best sprinter to ever grace the australian turf but one of the most genuine he was a twenty thousand dollar yearling who won a million dollars unfailingly honest little horse yeah, and beautiful to look at as well. And um, he had a, a particular brand on him as a like a V with a little five under it. And my mum knows that all too well because I used to write it on the walls. I used to write it from my textbooks. And Did you? <laughs> um, yeah, my my wedding ring actually has a V in it as well. So mm. uh, he's um, a fantastic little horse, and he, he was so genuine and just great to watch. And uh, I, yeah, he was a lot of fun. Yeah, the whole Show County story uh, is a perfect example of an owner's loyalty to a small trainer and jockey, the Doyle family. Brian Wood was the rider. Brian rode that horse in every one of his 27 or 28 starts. The only day he missed out, there was a jockey strike on at Warwick Farm and they had to use apprentices. Max Wiggins was the trainer and Woody and Max Wiggins uh, had that horse for life, didn't they? Yeah, they did, and it was it was a fantastic story. And I just um, I hope I can be as loyal to my jockeys as uh, he was to, to Woody. Mm. Your journey started, Michael, when your parents agreed to you spending some time in a racing stable on weekends and during school holidays. You kicked off with a bloke who was right up among the top three or four Sydney trainers at that time, the late Paul Sutherland. I did. I spent a few months there, absolutely petrified, Mm. and um, didn't know the front or back of a horse. I was allowed to do boxes and do waters, and that's about as as far as I got when Mm. I was there. I I didn't lead a horse. I don't remember leading a horse for Sutherland camp. Mm. Uh, I eventually moved on to Ray Guy mm. um, and I got a good introduction to horses there and that's where I really had more of a love of the horse than anything else. I spent a lot of time with a particular mm. horse called Grecian Runner okay. and, um, yeah, fell in love with him and then that, that's followed on for all horses. Yeah. Well, it was the late Ray Guy who didn't mince his words one day when he told young Michael Travers that he was going to be too big to make a jockey. You were absolutely shattered. I was. There was an opportunity that Ray was going to apprentice one of the people that was currently working for him. He pulled me into the room and, and Tim Phillips into the room and he looked at my wrists and said, I'm sorry, son, you're going to be too big. <laughs> and that was that. And funny thing is that um, 
I'm currently walking around about 52, 53 kilos, and I don't know what weight Tim Phillips walks around, but uh, I know he's far too big to be a jockey at the moment. But he had a great time and uh, did very well with his career. Well, Ray Guy's advice must have taken the wind out of your sails because after finishing school at the end of year 12, you successfully undertook a four-year Bachelor of Education degree. Yeah, I'd, um, I'd probably stop working for Ray probably when I finished year 10 and had to really knuckle down for schooling and do 11 and 12. Mm. And even though I was still going to the races and to my detriment, uh, I did more study of the form guide than I did of the, of, uh, the schoolwork, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but all I wanted to do was get into equine science and the TER was quite low at the time. And mm. uh, um, But it actually went up about 25 30%. And so eventually I, I went through and did uh, science teaching was a, at a local university and worked out well. Mm. Well, you put racing on the back burner during that period, obviously, but you never really got it out of your system. What was this pre-apprenticeship school you attended at Armadale? Was that a university initiative? No. Um, I was, funny enough, I was, I was run by racing in South Wales. Mm-hmm. I was just at Rose Hill Races one day and Murray Slogue was out there with his little uh, marquee mm-hmm. and I put I put my name down as being interested and got a phone call and funny enough I was on my place my final placement uh, teaching out at Newcastle mm-hmm. and I only had a week left there when they rang me and they said, Oh, would you be interested in going to Armadale and, and doing this pre apprenticeship course? I said, mm-hmm. well, it was just perfect timing and yeah. I said, Yeah, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Hadn't ridden a horse. In, uh, pretty much in my entire life up until that time, mm. and I was 24, and yeah, took it on and uh, had a fantastic time up there. Next step was a stint with Noel Mayfield Smith, who was then training at Hawkesbury, and you have absolutely no compunction in admitting that you fell off once or twice a week. Yeah, I, like autumn leaves, I was all over the place, and uh, I was always coming off and. I had a couple of nasty ones, uh, horses bolting on me and then uh, putting me over the fence. And, yeah, uh, once once I took myself to hospital, I just said, no, I'm, I, I don't have it. And, mm. you know, you either do or you don't, and I didn't. So um, back to teaching I went. Yeah, that's right. With the tail between the legs, you turned your back on racing and put that teaching degree to good use. Now, Mike, am I correct in saying... You taught three subjects, science, religion and music. Now, which schools were involved in these early years? Um, I taught at San Clemente for a little bit um, and then, but mainly around Bankstown. De La Salle Bankstown was one of the main schools that I taught at and I also taught at Sefton High School. And that was, that was the two main ones, De La Salle and Sefton. Mm. Your qualification to teach music obviously came from your own childhood. You must have learned to play piano and read music at an early age. Yes, uh, I did. It was one of those things that my parents were very um, forceful about. Uh, if we wanted to do anything, we had to – so my brother and I, we both did it, and my brother Nigel, we both did singing and piano. Uh, if we wanted to do singing, we had to do the piano. Uh, that was the deal. And yeah. we, we, were both, we were both right into the singing at the time. 
And, you know, we did that for an, a number of years. My brother, he still does it. And he actually takes his, uh, a little bit of music on it as well. We're just going to pause for a moment, Michael, to clear a commitment on the podcast and we'll come back with one of Australia's most versatile horsemen after this break on the Supernova Sound podcast. I'd like to give a shout to the Newcastle Jockey Club's big day on Friday, September the 15th, featuring the Group 3 treble, the Newcastle Gull Cup, the Cameron Handicap and the Tibby Stakes. The Newcastle Cup, first run in 1898, has had a strong connection with the Melbourne Cup. In 1987, Kenzai ran second to the Brotherhood at Newcastle, but came out to win the Melbourne Cup for Les Bridge and Larry Olsen less than two months later. Russia won the Newcastle Cup in 1944 and the Melbourne Cup two years later with the legendary Derby Munro in the saddle. Hyperno won the Newcastle Cup in 1977 and the Melbourne Cup two years later. In 1982, Gurners Lane won the Newcastle, Caulfield and Melbourne Cups. Green Moon won the Newcastle feature in 2010 and the Melbourne Cup the following year. The last horse to win back-to-back Newcastle Cups was Duo in 65 and 66. After his second win, the Hawkesbury-trained stayer won the Metropolitan, later ran third to Galilee in the Melbourne Cup. Another Newcastle Cup winner to carry his form into Victoria was Umpala in 1994, going on to finish third to Jeune and Paris Lane in the Melbourne Cup. It's all on again Friday, September the 15th, the Group 3 Spring Treble on the famous Broadmeadow track at Newcastle. Just before we leave the musical part of your life, I came up in an era when families would gather around the piano and sing the popular songs of the day. Now, today, of course, kids would rather stand in front of a battery of amplifiers and risk their long-term hearing by getting their heads blown off by a rock band. (laughs) You're a product of a different era. I was, yeah. Well, I was um, more so classically trained. I used to sing at the Opera House and Entertainment Centre when I was younger. So it was a different type of music. Um, I'm not adverse to more modern music these days, but that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you've already mentioned that you were 24 when you contacted Morris Logue at the race course. And what an ever helpful, uh, kind and generous person is Morris Logue, who now is in a similar role with Harness Racing New South Wales. Yeah, he was fantastic. And even long after I'd given away with um, Noel Mayfield-Smith, we're still in contact with him and being able to still stay in contact with him. When I decided, uh, it was probably 12 months, 18 months later, of Mm -hmm. being away from racing, I said, look, I wouldn't mind giving this another go, but it has to be a country placement. It has to be away from the city and the... the, And, no, so I can just wholly, solely... Uh, concentrate on that and need someone that can and help me along. And he was kind enough and good enough to place me in Aubrey with Rob Wellington. Right. Well, you must have been tickled pink a few months later when Rob Wellington actually signed you up as an apprentice. But you had to change direction very suddenly when your dad was diagnosed with cancer. You returned to a teaching job in Sydney to be closer to your father. Yes, and it's always family first, and that, it wasn't wasn't a really hard decision to make, to be honest. Um, mm. 
he was given 12 months and that's basically what he got to the day. So I, I took that opportunity. I moved back and was able to keep teaching. And so I kept an income stream going and spent mm. uh, a lot of good quality time with him and the rest of my family there in Sydney. Lovely. After Dad's passing, you inevitably followed your heart by going back to Rob Wellington's stables and it was Rob who eventually supplied your first race ride on a horse called Mark Killies at Albury. You picked up another ride earlier in the day on a horse called Mr Woodstock, but you wish you hadn't. Absolutely. Um, I think from memory they said that I'll... The steward said, you, you can have your licence, but you're not allowed to ride in a big field and you're not allowed to pull the whip. Mm. Um, I drew Barry 16 of 16 and I tried to whop the fur off it. So I made every mistake, but I suppose I got it out of my system. Um, <laughs> I got very close on my Achilles and we got beat a nose. I still look at the photo and wonder if I didn't actually win the race. But I'm, really? Are they yeah. sure? I'm sure they got it right, but it yeah. was just unfortunate. I was outridden by uh, the late Alan Abrahams. Mm. And otherwise, it would have been a magical start to the career. Well, Mark Killies finally did the job for young Michael Travers. Only a couple of weeks later, he won for you at a place called Tokem War. Yeah, a nice, lovely place down there on the on the border. And my first race for there, and my race for first winner there. And not, but I still mm. go back, and it's a it's a great little place and great holiday destination. A little later, you grabbed an opportunity to work for Paul Perry, who was then training a massive team of horses at Newcastle. You tell me you'd never seen so many horses. Yeah, he had uh, close to 100 horses in work, I think, at the time. And um, coming from my little stable of 10 or 12 with Rob, um, it was a a big eye-opener and just horses absolutely everywhere all morning, every morning. Mm. You say a horse called Proprietor was the best one you rode in a race for Paul Perry. You rode him three times, in fact, for one win at Newcastle by a big margin. He won by five lengths that day. Yeah, it was a, it was a great initiation for me. When I first went up there, Paul hadn't really seen me ride and was reluctant to give me race rides straight off the bat the first week I was there and then eventually relented and he gave me two rides at Newcastle. Mm. My, the first um, Within the first week I was there, I, I was very fortunate that I was able to get them both over the line and win on mm. both of them. And it just started a great association. But Proprietor, he was definitely my favourite. He was just an exceptional horse. He just felt so big and strong underneath me. And yeah. I remember saying to Paul at the time, even though he's, he'd only won the one race, that I, I really think this is... Um, something, you know, that could go on and win good races and mm. not knowing anything, I was still as green as grass. But uh, thankfully he did. He ended up uh, going out and uh, winning the Group 1 Galaxy later in his career. He did, and he won a stakes race at Flemington on another occasion. Yeah, it was. Um, he, was a, he was a really nice horse. And I actually purchased his half-sister along the line and um, purely because of that association and... Uh, she wasn't nearly as good, but uh, we had a little bit of fun with her too. Mm. She won some races then? Yes, she did, yeah. Yeah. That other horse you mentioned from the Perry stable was probably Chester County, uh, who later became a stakes winner at Randwick and finished up winning about a quarter of a million. You had one ride for one win on Chester County at Newcastle. 
yeah, he's a lovely little horse. He's, uh, oh, I can't believe I survived him. He, uh, he, he was probably pretty good most days, but I remember one day I was going across onto the gap, across the gap, and he decided to stand still in the middle of the grass. Uh, had two horses bearing down on me, and he just would not move. And then all of a sudden, we're doing three sixties, and uh, uh, thankfully the two riders that saw me there and I was in a bit of distress I didn't know which way to go and they went either side of me it was uh, unbelievable but yeah he was a nice little horse um, mm. not quite the same calibre as proprietor or the other great horse I was able to ride for Mr Perry um, Choisir You were delighted to ride Choisir in a number of track gallops what a great sprinter 2.2 million he won that glamorous double at Royal Ascot the King Stand mm. and the Golden Jubilee 20 years ago now must have been a hell of a thrill for a kid to sit on his back. It was. It was also very nerve-wracking. He uh, he was a definite cult and um, he had a good, a bad reputation, sorry, there at Newcastle for bolting back after he's worked and dislodging riders and creating havoc. So mm. everyone knew when he was there because Kieran would lead me from the tie-up all the way to the track and then lead me all the way from the track all the way back to the tie-ups. Um, yeah, he was a big, big, strong horse. Perhaps the horse you most enjoyed riding in races was Piracy. You rode this Encosta de Lago horse in all of his eight wins, which included a Ballrannell Cup and a Gundagai Cup. He was trained by Doug Vickers and he was owned by your mother, Ray. Yeah, there's a there's a lovely long story with this horse, and he was originally trained by my boss Rob Wellington at the time, and he told the owners that he wasn't going to make a two-year-old, and both Rob and I had been riding him, and he was a lovely horse, and they said no, get rid of him, and um, so I approached the owners and I said, oh, can I purchase him? And we purchased uh, my fiance at the time, mm. um, purchased him, and we turned him out for twelve months, like Rob suggested that he needed and mm. didn't race him until he was four and you know we had a great great um, run with him he's a fantastic horse and probably still to this day um would probably be my most satisfying win winning the Baronel cup there with um, doug Bickett's training yeah wonderful well 25 years of race riding brought you the inevitable accidents but overall you regard yourself as relatively lucky you say you sustained a couple of nasty concussions, but you escaped any life-changing injuries. Yeah, I've been absolutely blessed uh, in that regard. I've, I've had falls where I've just walked away from. Um, the concussions were, were piling up there at the end, but yeah, never, you know, the punctured lungs or spleens or spinal injuries mm. uh, that you, you hear so, or even a hit that you hear so much about in, in racing and you see with your mates all the time, but... So, you know, when you when you look at put it into perspective, you know, wrists and ankles and collarbones, they're they're not nearly as serious. Um and when when you've been involved in some of these other races, you know, the Mudgy Cup when there was five or six horses come down behind me, right. uh, that was um a horrific day. And um I was so lucky to that my horse stayed up and we actually jumped other horses during the run there were down on the ground and uh, to walk away from that one was fantastic um, but you, you know take luck out of the equation and uh, I'm moving on. My special guest is Michael Travers. Now Michael I just had a glance at the uh, your riding record for the early part of the year to 
see what your last winner, your last winning ride happened to be, and it was Wagga in February. Horse was called Lumber Dream, trained by Roger Waters. I don't know if you're aware, but he happened to have the same name as a champion trotting stallion of yesteryear. Uh, New Zealand bred Lumber Dream, or he stood at stud in New Zealand. He was an imported horse. By golly, he sighed some winners 30 years ago or a bit more. No, I wasn't aware of that uh, old Lumber Dream. He's a, he was a great old stayer and all still is. And, um, yeah, it was, good. it was a good win that day. Mm. Well, your race riding days are behind you, but you intend to continue riding track work. You believe it's going to be an asset going forward. Uh, you've got no desire to train huge numbers, but you'd like to build the team just a little. Not enough to lose that hands-on situation that you enjoy so much. Yeah, I really enjoy the horses and I, I spend all pretty much the entire day there. I start at five and generally finish at five and more often than not there's days that I don't come home and just stay there and try and find little things to do and I think the more you watch them and you can be around them, that you pick up on little things and you know, it's all those little one percenters that uh, count at the end of the day. I'm sure you'll be using the best jockeys available in your future pursuits and one of your current go-to riders, as we mentioned earlier, is the very much in form Jean Van Overmeer, who was on board your two winners at Wagga on the 31st of August, Dynamic One and the Bonnie Mare Matherin. Yeah, JVA has been really good. Um, I generally do try and use the local riders that ride here. Um, I did try and book Danny Beasley um, for the dynamic one. He's done a little bit of track work on him and mm. it was just unfortunately he was already booked up. And But nothing against JBO, obviously, because he's, he's, he's been fantastic from my stable. And, you know, he's going so, so well at the moment. He's just, everything he rides, he just, seems to be in the right spot every single time. It's unbelievable. Mm. Dynamic One, one of your winning double on August 31, is owned by your great stable supporter, Robin Tatham. That increases the thrill, no doubt. Yeah, he's um, he's been just such a great find. Um, he's something different than what I'm used to. I had a lot of horses come through with these tried horses, and he's one of the first ones where I've just, I was riding along with Graham Byatt, and I just turned and said, this thing's just different, and uh, I hope I'm right. And you know, he's only just won the one race, but he's got a, a lot of upside to him. Mm. Really looking forward to his future. You and Jody have a ten-year-old son, Maverick, and you have two stepchildren, Cameron and Alaska. Any budding jockeys or trainers among that lot? Gee, I hope not. Um, <laughs> Maverick's short enough and, and and light enough, but. He's also very, uh, very switched on. He's very good at his mathematics and uh, and very good just school wise. And um, I'll be definitely pushing him in that direction. Yeah, you've already mentioned uh, your connection with the English Digital Online Sale, which of nowadays, of course, is bi monthly. Uh, it took off like a hurricane, didn't it? A little slow in its early days, back in two thousand and seventeen. But everybody's using it now. It's fantastic. Um, you know, you, there's, there's always the, the diamond and the rough in, through the sale, and if you're lucky enough to find it, then congratulations. Uh, my, as I said, Robin and Peter, they just they predominantly work that way, or they also have a bloodstock agent, uh, Danny Hamlin, uh, that they work with uh, quite closely, and they've found some great horses 
through that sale. And as I said, none better or, or more important to me than Massa. You've been a friend of many Riverina trainers over the years and almost 1,000 winners is testimony to your hard work and truckloads of talent. You're on a new and exciting career path now, Michael, which I know is going to bring you continued success. And if ever the opportunity arises, I'd love to hear you bang something out on the piano. Do you do requests? I could do requests as long as they're really simple ones. (laughs) (laughs) As I said, I haven't played the piano for many, many years and uh, it's pretty embarrassing, to be honest, I think, uh, on the first couple of times anyway. Congratulations on all you've achieved in racing here in New South Wales and I know uh, good days lay ahead. Thanks for your time, Michael, on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Many Australian trainers have tried their horses on Pride's Racing Cube and have given the product a tick of approval. These small but powerful extruded cubes provide the ultimate muscle fuel to help horses finish their races off while promoting gut health. Racing Cube set recipe formulation means the same premium quality proteins and essential amino acids are used in every batch produced. Racing Cube's profile and digestibility allows you to feed approximately two to three kilos less per day than similar raw grain rations. It's salt-free to help reduce irritation if you've got a horse prone to stomach ulcers. Pride's Racing Cube is available in the popular 25-kilo bag, in bulk bags, or straight into the silo if you prefer, giving you quality equine nutrition at an economical price. Talk to your local rep about Racing Cube, another winner from the Pride's Easy Feed Stable. Trainers of thoroughbreds, standardbreds, and performance horses are giving it the thumbs up all around the nation.